Welcome to the RSA Events Podcast, the home of world-changing ideas and debate. Thank you everyone who's decided to stay with us in the great room. Welcome back. Um, a Sunday night ritual in my house often involves watching one of the great nature documentaries that the BBC produces. Most recently, we have been glued to the brilliant UK-based series, Wild Isles. Let's take a quick look. Welcome to a place that is astonishing. Nature in these islands, if you know where to look, can be extraordinary, dramatic, and beautiful. It rivals anything I've seen elsewhere. It's not far. It's home. on BBC iPlayer. Whether it is fledgling eagle chicks in the Cairngorms, bees extraordinarily laying their eggs in empty snail shells, or those determined Atlantic salmon battling their way upstream, the series as a whole shows us some remarkable images. Every single episode, I'm sure you'll have noticed, comes with a really important message, a familiar warning. Our impact is making life harder and harder for almost every species that we share our wild isles with. <coughs> to discuss the challenges faced by the animals and the camera crews, please welcome series producer Hilary Jenkins. <clears throat> We've got some brilliant images that we're going to see as we go through our conversation. I'll try and we? keep up with you. <laughs> what was your ambition with this series? Well. Our ambition really was to make a big, glossy British series. We've all seen uh, the Worldwide series and we thought, um, we, we were sure we could do it with Britain. It was quite a difficult one to get commissioned. I don't think there was a belief that Britain could be as spectacular uh, as, as the rest of the world. Um, so Silverback Films, a um, couple of guys who used to work for uh, the Natural History Unit, um, started up a company that made blue chip films. Uh, and every time they went to get their commissions, they took Wild Isles and they said, what about our British series? I think it took about 10 years for it to be accepted. But we'd all worked for the BBC for many years on things like Spring Watch and live programmes. Um, and we'd spent time in the field um, seeing tantalising behaviour. So quite often you're there for two or three days. You film a little bit, but you think, goodness, if we were here for three weeks, what could we get? What could we see? So really our ambition was to, to make something really big for Britain and we felt the time was right. So it was commissioned in 2019 uh, and what we needed to do then was get other parties on board. So WWF and RSPB and Open University came on board and with their expertise and their credibility and their funds, we, we then were in a good position to make a big series. But of course we thought we felt that um, you couldn't make a series like that uh, through rose-tinted glasses. We needed to convey conservation messages. Let's talk about 
what those messages are because they're embedded. I've been, been watching, I've watched the whole series and then it's been a complete pleasure. Now I was going to talk to you to go back and watch some of the episodes over again. There is a conservation message embedded as, as often as possible, wherever it's relevant. What are they? Because there I was thinking that our wild owls had, it's Britain, of course, the, it's like we were talking about the creative industries. We're going to be the best in the world. We're not, are we? We're not. No, um, Britain is one of the least biodiverse countries in the world. Um, and we don't really realise it. So we, we wanted to make a series which would inspire people, excite them, give them hope. But we felt we needed to tell the truth, to, to feed these messages in. So we are very lacking in biodiversity. But on the positive side, for a small set of islands, we've got some amazing and globally important wildlife. For example, we've got 50% of the world's common bluebells. We all take it for granted. You know, we go out and we see them and it's, it's a lovely spectacle in spring. And, you know, people travel the world to come and see them. So we do have these wonderful pockets of wildlife, which we are custodians of for, really for, for the world. Um, we've got 85% of the world's chalk streams. That's probably about 250 odd chalk streams. 220 of those are in southern Britain. So, you know, we are very important, but they're... Why do they matter, the chalk streams? I mean, they're a very particular habitat, aren't they? I think every habitat matters, or every ecosystem is important. So they're very particular habitats. You've got water percolating up through chalk, creating really crystal, crystal clear rivers, which have got fantastic invertebrates and, and fantastic fish, which is, you know, part of the whole system of, of birds feeding. So. Every little habitat has its own ecosystem, so they're really important. What is happening to the chalk streams? I mean, we haven't had water running in, where I, in my part of the country for the last few days, so what does that mean in terms of those environments? Is, it, there, is there a real they threat? They are threatened, you know, and I know just trying to find a chalk stream, trying to find a pristine chalk stream to film was, was quite difficult. Um, I would take my hat off to, to fishermen, and uh, many of them are protected for fishing, uh, which, which, which keeps them pristine. But as we lose water, uh, as our, our water levels drop, chalk streams are disappearing um, and becoming polluted. So yes, they like our bigger rivers, they are under threat. And they are quite shallow rivers, uh, quite slow moving, so they are quite sensitive. Let's talk about trees. You've got a great image of an oak there. Um, we have over <coughs> millennia chopped quite a lot of trees down in our country for various reasons, whether it's from you know, shipbuilding hundreds of years ago to clearing land, farmland and so on. But we're not doing too badly when it comes to the oak, are we? No, we're good, we're good for oaks. Um, as you say, you know, the big trees were chopped down for masts, for ships uh, and during wars. But we've got over, we've got more ancient oaks than the rest of Europe put together, which, was, which is brilliant. Mm. Um, and they're important habitats. I mean, an oak tree can have up to 2,300 species of animals, invertebrates, birds, etc., living within it. Um, and we discovered when we were filming for Wild Isles, we travelled to Blenheim. We had a look where the best oaks might be. And there are still forests. There's an ancient forest there that has several hundred oaks in. And there's one oak tree, which I don't know how they knew this. They said it was 1,046 years old. Um, so an oak can continue. You often see really ancient oaks, which are hollow inside, but that mm. 
is a habitat itself for beetles and, and other creatures. So we are in a, in a good place for oaks. Um, fairly recently, there was a survey. I think the more you look quite often, the more you find. And some of our country houses have got quite significant oaks hidden away. So we, we're good for oaks. There's, a, there's an oak in uh, a lovely country estate near where I live in Kent. A place, I don't know if anyone's been there. It's called Penshurst, Penshurst Place. It's not run by the National Trust. It's, a, it's still a private estate. And there's an oak tree there that is you know, celebrated as somewhere mm. where Sir Philip Sidney sat and wrote his sonic sequences beneath this oak tree. Um, so there are individual oaks that tell a story really about yeah, and it's quite incredible to think, you know, if an oak is a thousand years' time, who has passed under that? Who's yeah. sat under it for shade? You know, has there been a battle nearby? Mm. They're, you know, they're a really sort of constant part of our, our lives. And it's interesting as well, um, recently science has, has shown that oaks have lived through many changes in climate. So they, within their genes, they hold on almost to a memory of, of a, a different climate. So they've been through drought before. So there is a possibility, I don't understand it completely myself, they can fast track evolution and, and throw back to, to creating um, a form of themselves that will, will be more resistant to drought. So, you know, there, there is secret hope there. I have never heard that before. What a wonderful piece of information to share. Let's go on to some of the geology as well and what that means in terms of habitat. Quite a lot of birds there, aren't there? Quite a lot of birds. <laughs> Quite a lot of birds. So um, Britain is also important for migratory species. And that's, that's a place called Bass Rock in the Forth of Firth. And it, in the winter, it looks like a sort of slightly a smeared piece of rock. But in the summer, you have 75,000 gannets. It's 175,000 pairs of gannets return. So it's the, the largest gannet colony in the world. And that is an example really of how Britain is, is important in the jigsaw of wildlife. You know, wildlife doesn't exist in isolation. You know, we have migratory birds coming to, to feed and to breed and then moving on. So we are important for um, our estuaries feed uh, vast flocks of knots. We have starlings that, that come from Eastern Europe. So there's that connection. So, you know, it's important that we keep our, our, our habitats because, you know, we are in that global jigsaw, really. We've managed to talk for about 10 minutes already about a BBC documentary series without mentioning national treasure, David Attenborough. And I did entice people back into the room earlier on by mentioning that there's a story about how you got him involved that incorporates a lemon drizzle cake. He wasn't on board right from the get-go, was he? No, I mean, we've been pushing the series for quite a long time. Uh, so we didn't, we didn't actually sell it with him, we sold it for it in its merits as a wildlife series, but we always secretly hoped that he might be interested to do it. And at the time when we got it commissioned, he was really busy, as he always is. Um, so we sort of went to see him, and I do know he's got a bit of a weakness for cake. Uh, and have, in the past, when we've been filming, we've had incidences where he says, are you going to have a pudding? And I'll say, um, no. He said, oh, perhaps you should have this. And then he'll eat it. And he said, well, it doesn't count, does it? Because it doesn't count for me because it was your pudding. So he's, he's always been, <laughs> been into cakes and things. Anyway, so in 2019, when we'd done a bit of filming, we created a trailer. And I cooked a lemon drizzle. And we went to see him. And we asked him whether he might be interested uh, in the series, and he was definitely, definitely interested. He felt the time was right. He felt, he felt the time was right in terms of the crisis we have for nature and also for him. 
Um, he'd been around the world, he'd filmed a lot of global wildlife, but um, he felt he hadn't seen or been at home enough. Mm. Uh, and that was great because um, we then had a sort of our, our secret weapon, really. Yeah. So for each programme, he was happy to draw on his own personal experience. And it was very interesting talking to him. You know, a man of 97 has seen generations of change. What our children see as the norm, that if they go into a meadow, is not the norm. It's not how it used to be. So he was telling us, for example, this is um, the grassland programme. We put him in a meadow. He told stories of, of cycling through a meadow and being dared. People dare you to run through a meadow and you'd have insects in your hair and in your eyes and in your teeth. And it's, it's not like that anymore. And I think we know from just taking trips to go on holiday. I remember as a child, um, traveling to Cornwall, my dad would have bottles of water and we'd stop the car and clean the windscreen off. And it's not like that anymore. So having his experience and his, his um, life experience was brilliant. So we yeah. set him up in a habitat for each program. Um, so for the um, Rivers program, it looks like you put him in a baking tray there, but um, <laughs> he w went to visit a chalk stream. Uh, actually, the people had heard about his uh, penchant for cakes as well, and he had a Victoria sponge on that one. Um, <laughs> on the boat? Um, no, just while he was making that. may have sunk the boat, but yeah. What, what, are the, what are the guys doing? Just move on to the next, next shot, if you will. What are they doing with the... There are people in the water next to so them. If we go on to the next slide. Um, What's actually happening in that image? So this is um, cameraman Gavin uh, filming, and we've got someone in the water who's got a reflector. So yeah. really, um, it's not a very deep stream, so it's just um, getting some, bouncing some light onto him, really. Um, so, uh, yeah. What are you covering in that episode? That so this episode um, was our um, freshwater episode. So he, he starts that one by talking about the state of our rivers, which we, we all know about. Um, but it's a positive message as well, because really we, we showcase exactly what we have. We have water shrews, we have um, damselflies, all kinds of things. So, um, but each time we thought... We'd set it up, not with doom and gloom, but with a, with a thought that you could take throughout the programme. Um, the, our rivers are polluted, but if you see all these things, it, as David says, you, know, you, you have to care to, yeah. to, to want to, to, to protect them. Moving on to another episode. This is one of my favourites, when he's waiting for that little bird to take flight. He describes how it's getting as much elevation as it can. It's about to launch itself into a very long flight. And he, just, he sends it on its way. It's one of the most touching, simple moments that I've seen in a wildlife programme. Um, when you watched the rushes back from that, did you just think that's TV gold? It was. You know, your heart sort of skips a beat when that happens. But we wanted to use him as well in his capacity just to relate to animals and the joy that he has and, and the connection. And that was on... Um, um, uh, that was... Uh, well, my mind's gone. It was on an island, mm. um, a scoma. 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 Uh, and we were slightly worried because we, there were 87 steps to get from the bottom of the island up to the place where we were filming. And it was a night shoot. Um, With a 97-year-old man. 97-year-old man. Treasure. And, <laughs> and we had... Also, we had bird flu, so we had to be very, very careful, you know, about touching birds, mm. etc. But 
it's a waiting game, and he's so patient and so so sort of so ready to say the right thing at the right time. So that's some Manx shearwater uh, that migrates to Britain, uh, and they nest in tunnels. Um, and at, uh, in in June July time. Um, they migrate 6,000 miles back to South America and he was just waiting for that little bird to take off. It took a while and then it just kind of launched itself up and he, you know, he quite endearingly said, bon chance, good luck, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's a lovely, lovely moment. Let's talk about the stories you chose. I'm looking at that, all those post-it notes. Um, you can't tell them all. How do you choose which ones to tell, which ones you can tell and you can film successfully. Because you mentioned to me when we chatted on the phone, how many filming days to make this series? Uh, 1,631. Mm. Uh, and how is... many for the salmon, just the salmon going up the... Um, well, the salmon we filmed all the way from um, the ocean, so coming yeah. up the estuary right to its spawning grounds. That was 71 days on that, which includes, you know, the underwater, the waterfalls, um, days mm. where you sit doing nothing for quite a long time. So to choose the stories, we try to balance out the animals between the programs, so some invertebrates, uh, some bigger predators, um, to balance out the emotions as well, the stories uh, and the colours, you know, different colour palettes, but also stories that we could, we could relate to in terms of the conservation messages as well. And we were also looking for surprising animals with sort of new behaviour that we, we could capture, because we've got an educated audience that watches a lot of wildlife. So we, we need to go a step further. You know, they, they've seen a lot. So how can, we, how can we make it more interesting, make the stories deeper, you know, let them see mm. more? Bees on broomsticks. Bees on broomsticks, yeah, which um, that's called, a, that's a mason bee. Um, we had the Harry Potter music on that, which was quite yeah. fun. <laughs> uh, and that's a bee that, um, it's a, a solitary bee that lays its egg in, in an empty shell. Uh, and then it covers it up with sticks. So the egg goes in, it provisions it with pollen, mm. uh, and then it, it hides it. So it was quite fun just seeing them whizzing across um, th with their broomsticks. Um, and we tried to choose exciting behaviour. So this here is a, is a white-tailed eagle, uh, which has been um, reintroduced after extinction up into, in Scotland. That's in Isla. Um, and the wardens up there had seen snippets of behaviour. They'd seen them catching barnacle geese. So um, no one had probably filmed, probably filmed it as a, as a mm. whole sequence. So we sent um, our guys up there. Um, and we had to build hides. Uh, it's like a needle in a haystack, really, knowing exactly where it's going to happen. So hides in different places, walkie-talkies. Um, and we've got these various different experts. Some are a genius on long lenses, and that's Jesse um, on a long lens. So it's finding the right team for the sort of right animals. Um, and this is um, orca, killer whales. We were quite surprised at the behaviour there, and you've probably seen killer whales in the big blue chip series pushing seals off icebergs. But, you know, we've got got our own killer whales that come to Britain, um, and they had a really interesting strategy. Um, hunting uh, in the kelps, uh, chasing of getting seals in the, in the kelp channels mm. and, and then pushing them out to open water. So we had to have, buy a boat to do that one. Uh, and uh, we had a sort of big um, stabilised camera on, um, on, a, on a big jib arm there, which we had to be careful not to, to dip into the water because it was expensive. 
And it was getting those angles as well. You know, you want to see things as, as if you're there. So we, we put cameramen in the water. Um, that's, that's Doug, who we were talking about before, Doug Anderson, who's a brilliant cameraman. We, um, and we, we, he had to wear a hat just so that they didn't, um, didn't dive at him. That's uh, gannets. And things like macro um, small things, trying to bring those to life, get, getting interest to, um, to sort of fungi and smaller things. Um, and this is Katie, who um, had a tracking system and, and, and incredible lenses to, to, to get those really close-up macro angles. And things like the bluebells that we were talking about, um, just getting some movement into them um, using tracking systems. Um, and we did a sequence where we, we had cable dollies that we tied to trees. And when the bluebells were green, we whizzed them across. And then we went back a couple of weeks later and we strapped them back up and yeah. whizzed them across again. So just getting all those um, different angles and different ways of filming them. The series, I mentioned the messages that are delivered in the series, but it has, as any great documentary does and particularly wildlife documentary this really has an afterlife doesn't it and I don't just mean it sits on the iPlayer to dip back into like I have been in in recent weeks what is it leading us to how does it inspire us today at the RSA is all about what can go right mm. and I'm hoping there's a message here of hope and positivity too yes yeah, so um, a, a separate program was commissioned uh, called saving our wild isles we didn't want to sort of leave our audience sort of despondent um, without something to do. And we felt more than the global programmes, actually, this is on your doorstep. You can, you can do something. So Saving Our Wild Isles um, is a positive programme. It explains more about the issues because we only touched on them to make people think. Um, but it showcases people that are making a difference. So groups that are planting, replanting seagrass, trees, farmers that are farming with nature so lots of really inspiring projects and just in the news this week there was the reintroduction of dormice into a particular mm. national forest it's really lovely to hear those stories still emerging even if it, i mean tiny creatures and then there's, there's all sorts of rewilding and reintroduction programs aren't there at the moment um should we take a few audience questions does, does anybody i mean we've got one of the great um wildlife filmmakers with us so please do if there's a gentleman at the front here with the uh, just wait for the microphone to come to you um do pop your hand up now so i can get a sense of who we might go to next if you've got a question great well, I'm a, uh, is it on yeah well i'm a great admirer of, of the um, um natural history unit uh, programs and uh, you said something that strike me, but it's, and I know that it, it's, it's as it is. Uh, you were um, shooting like a thousand, or you were dedicating for the program a thousand, five hundred, or a more than a thousand days, isn't it? One thousand six hundred and thirty-one, we think. One, yeah. <laughs> okay. But, but my, my question has to do with what happened afterwards, because I, what I know is that you take, I mean, years to... Uh, watch every single um, um, uh, shoot and also um, you have to tag everything because there is a very sophisticated metadata system that also helps uh, in sometimes in detecting using AI certain birds and, 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 and wildlife. So my, my question has to do with the, the process that you take after that and how the, I mean, perhaps you can tell us a little mm. bit more about the people that are, that are involved, I know that they are, I mean, 
when we talk about metadata, we, we talk about taxonomy. But actually, I know that there are many biologists involved in, in the process. Hilary, what did you start out process. as? Uh, I studied biology. So, I mean, my <laughs> Thank interest you. Great question. really was the stories which I wanted to tell and share because there were amazing things happening. And that's a really good question because we work with lots of specialists and, and they are our bread and butter. They, they are what make our stories. Um, and we see things that they don't see. So they tell us about their research, but they don't sit there day and night trying to get these shots. And they don't have uh, cameras that will shoot in the dark, <coughs> macro lenses which will show you the, the hairs on a beetle's legs, you know. So we do share footage with scientists um, and we have a good relationship with them. So quite often, usually they're on location with us, advising us um, uh, about what might happen and looking at footage as we're getting it. Um, and explaining what's happening. And they will come to our offices afterwards and spend days with us. We just give them the rushes and say, we'll just sit and have a look. You know, if you're not making any money from this footage, take it, use it with your, your students. And some, um, some of the footage has inspired people to, to write PhDs. Um, so, there, you know, there's new science coming from it. Also, um, I mean, as you pointed out we have lots of footage left over you know all of these days are compressed into a sequence which might last for five minutes when you've got you know three days worth of footage um, and silverback films are working at the moment are on a new initiative where they're trying to package up film which can be used for uh, ngos and charities uh, for conservation messaging without a cost so that project is is ongoing as well brilliant uh, lady in the next row that's it perfect um, I, I just think the series was absolutely brilliant. It was spectacular. And if anybody's not watched it, should watch it all. And I'm really glad you mentioned the sixth episode um, as well. Um, I, it, it builds on, actually, your last point, which was, I'm really curious, what's the story that didn't quite make it into the series that you would love still to be told? Um, there's always some animals that you, you can't do. So I do love... Um, House Martins, Swallows and Swifts, and we didn't manage to cover them. But it's some of the macro stories which are the most surreal, really, some of the, the life cycles. So there was a story about a, a zombie ladybird, actually, which um, <laughs> we didn't get to film. And it's a story of a parasitic wasp that lays its egg into a ladybird and then sort of starts to develop inside it, but keeps the ladybird alive. So it kind of moves around with this kind of shell of a ladybird on it and then hatches out. It's quite gross, but... <laughs> <laughs> I just haven't quite worked out how to get inside the ladybird yet. That's the, that's the challenge. That, that is the amazing thing. With the, with the, you know the one with the shell, with the bee? And I'm thinking, how did you get a camera inside the shell, the snail shell, to film the bee coming in? How big is that camera? Um, tiny. So we had a, an amazing cameraman um, who uh, just loves a challenge, really. So he'll look at things and develop, develop lenses. So um, he, he sawed the end off a snail shell. Um, and these bees, when they're, when they're actually doing what they're doing, they're, they're really intent. So if you put one next door to the shell that they're working in, sometimes they'll get a little bit confused and they'll sort of come in. So he, we, and he had a lens which was able to sort of look right inside. So it's a combination of yeah. techniques, really. Let's take what, we've got one last question. Could we bring the microphone over to the lady in the pink dress in the middle here? Thank you. 
Um, since you filmed, we've experienced the worst avian influenza epidemic that yes. this country has ever seen. Over 20,000 wild birds, um, at an estimation, of, have died. Um, do you know if that gannet colony um, has suffered, and gannets in particular have really suffered from the avian flu? It has suffered. Uh, and last year, we, we went back to, uh, to film some footage uh, at the same angles to show that change. Um, and we had heard that quite a lot of birds had died, but it's, it's not, not an absolute disaster on, on this one. This is, that gannet colony has reached capacity, really. So quite a lot of the gannets that had poorer nesting grounds on the outside of the, of the colony are moving in. I mean, the tragedy is that these birds are quite long-lived, so gannets can live for sort of 20-odd years. So it will take time for those numbers to build up again. Um, so, yeah, it has been affected, but there, there is hope for it. I'm so sorry we haven't got time for more questions. I really know that Hillary is such a highlight for lots of people today. It's been a, a personal, complete pleasure um, speaking to you. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Hilary Jekin. Thanks for listening. If you like this podcast, head to our YouTube channel for inspiring talks, interviews and animations.